Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Alst. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing well. I have been uh, enjoying this cold weather, actually, I must say. Uh, the fresh, 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 very fresh mornings when I get up and take myself down to the gym. I've been rugging up, but we might see a, uh, a warm change around the corner. Yeah, it hasn't been that cold that's been driving. It's just this is the first week I've really actually experienced the cold, but I've actually got the flu as well, which hasn't oh, no. helped. So, yeah, so I'm just trying to recover from that. But apart from that, I've been good. Yes, you've probably been working yourself crazy. That's why you're um, unwell. You need a rest. Yeah, take a holiday. Need a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but before you do, tell us about your challenge for the week, Rena. Yeah, this challenge actually has been sort of one that I've been observing over time and it sort of came to the forefront um, this week when I had two members of a prospective um, owners corporation that want me to manage them. And basically what they've said is that, you know, this person is actually a committee member and he doesn't get all copies of all the correspondence, but that's a separate issue. But basically whenever they've done a strata search, all the records aren't complete. There's no copies of emails printed. You know, they've only in a whole year there's probably maybe half a dozen pieces of correspondence. And they feel that even knowing the law correctly, that there has to be more information than this. Yep. And I've been thinking also since I've taken new plans from various different companies that only one company actually provided me with, with a copy of their email export. And now that most people communicate by email, I was quite surprised that I hadn't received it, nor had these copies been made, Amanda, in hard copy printed format. Mm-hmm. And also what, what's been happening, I've been getting like the electronic files, which are like they're basically whatever they, they keep on their hard drive. Mm. And so let's say, you know, you send an email as a lawyer with a cost disclosure. Well, that's just being filed on the email. That cost disclosure is not being saved mm. in, say, the appropriate directory that would have said that they had a legal directory or whatever. Mm. And so I'm just really wondering – the records of the owners corporations now that people are using email, I mm. think that when they're being transferred between managers or even when people are not between managers but just at the one company, yep. when strata searches are coming to do a search, one of them said to me, Rena, where are all the emails You know, <laughs> from the other company? I said, well, I don't know where they are. I said, I'll have to ask for a copy. Yeah. Another another thing I've observed also is um, some obviously there's sort of two main software that strata companies use, Strata Master and, and Strata Max. and mm-hmm. One has a document management system called FileSmart, it's a Master. So, I've, so you have to sort of open it and get into it. Mm-hmm. Then I've noticed that this manager only saved certain emails and there are others that <laughs> and I'm thinking to be electronic, you know, even though it saves paper and filing in the long run, it, it is time-consuming, you know, scanning, saving, renaming. Unfortunately, people name documents with whatever the scanner gave you rather than the actual name and you're trying to open every document to see what it is. But yep. I'm just concerned now that people are actually not – 
transferring these records and not printing them. And then how do owners yep. and, and thrivers are just getting access to emails? Yep, it is an age-old problem and it's something that I see when I go in looking at records uh, for lot owners or trying to assist an owner's corporation to locate things within their own records. Mm. Uh, a lot of stuff is missing and it does not surprise me that emails uh, and otherwise electronic documents are a big category of things that just do not make it to the file. Now, mm. I know as you do, Rena, that yeah, strata managers do use this, this software that supposedly helps them file things and file them in the right place. Mm. Um, we can't forget to file emails. They absolutely are records of the owner's corporation. They do need to be kept amongst the owner's corporation's records. And as you point out, Rena, there will be different types of email correspondence. There'll be correspondence with the committee. There'll be correspondence with lot owners. There'll be correspondence with lawyers. And that may go in a different file, correspondence mm. with engineers. And that goes to the mm. refurbishment project file. It's very difficult for owners and new strata managers who are taking on buildings as you are to have an understanding of what's been going on if they don't have these records. Yeah. And the other thing also, I'm one of the strata searches when he came in, obviously it was a new building I had acquired, so I didn't have much to, to give him from my management period of time. And I said to him, well, how do you know, like, there's no email. So how do you know? He asked me, oh, it doesn't matter, Rena. He said to me, I've, I've got a disclaimer on my report. And um, he said that, you know, like usually most things will be in the minutes anyway. And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> I know as a strata manager, a lot of things don't get onto the minutes. Mm. Sometimes it's a deliberate thing because, you know, people are worried, community members especially, if, if there's any litigation or any any issues that may adversely affect the sale of apartments or the value or mm. how the building's perceived. Certain things don't get onto the, yep. the the agenda. And I'm thinking, and this particular two owners that came to see me said, Rena, if we'd, win, if we'd seen all this stuff in the records, we wouldn't have bought this apartment. Yeah, wow. And I didn't want to say any more than that because thinking, well, you, you know, you may have an, an action against your – the manager, but I'm just thinking, well, you know, I know that there is a case where I think that has happened and I, whereas a lot of owners sued a manager because all the records had not been provided and obviously, you know, yeah. when, but how much apartments cost these days. And also if there's a lot of fighting within the scheme, you know, that's also a red flag. You don't want to perhaps move into a – like I think Anne-Marie from CHU mentioned on her podcast with you a few weeks ago, Amanda, when you look at the records, you see what's happening in a scheme and if those mm. things aren't available – Yep to you, then how can you make a a well-informed decision. Yeah, and as you say, the minutes are not enough. It's important for owners to have access to that other correspondence, which is often where the meat is. Mm. And the interesting thing about strata searches is like a lot of things, unfortunately, in the strata uh, sector, it becomes a commoditized service, which means mm. they, strata searches are not charging very much for that service. They mm. get by on quantity and it is quality that suffers and they don't have the time to spend doing very detailed searches and giving very detailed reports to their owners. So they have what I understand to be a, a template procedure. They tick the boxes and say this was mm. here, this wasn't there and protect themselves, uh, they think, by having a disclaimer at the end, you know, that says may not have seen everything, can't rely on this, must rely on your own inquiries. Um, yeah. Purchasers think that they've done their due diligence. Mm. Little do they know. Exactly. So, yeah, that's, I just want to, I've been thinking about this for some time now. And I suppose my experience with these two owners recently just sort of brought it to the forefront that, you know, there's so much inaction in terms of record keeping and I think lack of compliance with the law, to be honest, because uh, if you look at the act, it's quite specific on what must, what the owners' corporation must keep. I suppose they are keeping it, Amanda, but how are they? 
um, showing it yes. to third parties. Uh, yeah, so. Yeah, making it accessible and available. And yes. Well, moral to the story is, strata managers, make sure you are complying with, first of all, that you know what your statutory duties are as an agent and also under the Strata Schemes Management Act to keep these records and to make them available to owners who are coming to inspect the records or sending yes. their agent, which might be a strata searcher, to inspect the records because you could land yourself in hot water if you're not complying yeah, with those exactly. obligations. Okay, well, my challenge this week, Rena, and it was a challenge that I think was shared by many Sydney siders who read Jimmy Thompson's column in the Sydney Morning Herald. By the time this goes to air, it will have been a few weeks ago. But just last week, Mr Thompson, who I know and is a great supporter of mine, published an article that said, Strata bylaws invalid. And he was referring to bylaws that attempt to prohibit short-term lets in strata buildings. And he had obtained a quote from a spokesperson at the New South Wales Department of Fair Trading. And that quote was to the effect that any bylaw which attempts to restrict the lease of a lot is going to be invalid under the Strata Schemes Management Act. And that includes bylaws which attempt to prohibit short-term letting. Now, that came out of an amendment which Fair Trading had made to its Strata Living Handbook to refer to Section 136 of the Strata Schemes Management Act, which says that an owner's corporation cannot have a bylaw that restricts the lease of a lot. That section has always been there. Yeah, exactly. That's thought of, man. That's always been there. (laughs) Yeah, it was section 49 in the old Act and... Yeah, you couldn't say you didn't want children to live in an apartment, things like that. Yeah, that's what it was designed for. And the, the history behind that is that it was designed to show that strata title buildings are different to company title and mm. where company title has a great range to determine who lives in the building and mm. direct board of directors can interview people and say, we don't want children, we don't want elderly people, whatever it is that they decide they don't like, that's all perfectly legal in company title. So when strata title came along and we had this legislative scheme, the policymakers were quite careful to include a clause that says, hey, this is not like company title, you can't restrict the leasing of a lot. Mm. Now, there is great debate. Uh, in some circles about whether or not that means you can't have a bylaw that says no short-term lets in our building. And I have always maintained the position, as have many of my colleagues, that a bylaw that says you have to use your lot in accordance with the council planning instruments and Mm. the council zoning is not a bylaw that restricts the lease of a lot. If the council planning instrument says no short-term lets or no service departments or no bed and breakfast or whatever term it is that they use, then you can have a bylaw that reflects that same standard. And it is not you, the building, then restricting the short-term letting. Mm. It is you, the building, confirming what council's requirements are. And some lawyers would take that even further to say, well, a bylaw that does say no short-term letting is not a restriction on lease, it's a restriction on use. And it's quite Mm. clear in our legislation and the case law that's come out from our higher level courts here in New South Wales that you can have restrictions on use. Mm. Now, at the end of the day, this is not an issue that has been determined here in New South Wales by the courts 
international tribunals. I uh, expect that it will be. At some point, someone's going to challenge one of these bylaws and we will have some more guidance. The frustration is that fair trading apparently made to Jimmy quite a clear statement of what they mm-hmm. thought the law meant. And Jimmy's now published on his flat chat website the comments of six strata lawyers, most of whom disagree with what fair trading has said and disagree that that's what the law means. And look, my point of view is fair trading is there to say what the law says. It is the job of courts and tribunals to tell us what the law means, two different things. And as any lawyer will tell you, it is open to interpretation and there will Mm. be lawyers ready and ready and waiting to debate this particular issue. And until it's resolved by court or there is some clearer guidance in legislation, in my view, it is not correct to fair trading to be coming out and giving a blanket statement that these bylaws are invalid. It's just not the case. Yeah, I agree with that, Amanda. And um, a lot of the schemes that, that I've managed and, and do manage now have included these in their bylaws because um, no one looks at the development consent when they're buying or, the, as you know, a bylaw forms part of a, of, a, of a tenancy lease. And so, in a sense, what the council restriction is would not be um, available to lot owners perhaps or tenants when when they're leasing or when they're buying, whereas mm. when you have bylaws, normally those documents are, are quite readily available mm. and therefore, to me, you're, as you just said, you're reinforcing what the council has already imposed as a restriction on, on the use of particular lots in a scheme. So mm. I think that it's not to sort of – you're just supporting what's already been um, noted in the development consent. Yeah, that's claims. it. That, yep. Yeah. And if any of our listeners want to check out the detailed comments of the six strata law experts that Jimmy has published on his website, including my own detailed comment, you can uh, head over to his flat chat website and I will put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. It's wonderful, man. I'm actually, I'm actually looking forward to seeing if there's been there really any cases moving forward in relation to this area because it's been quite contentious. Yeah, there has been a case in Western Australia recently and I know we have a few listeners who are hanging out for me to talk about that case but I do know the solicitor who was involved in acting for the Owners Corporation in that case and we're just uh, waiting for some time to pass and I have high hopes that that solicitor will be a guest on the podcast to be able to talk in detail about that case and what it meant for Western Australia and how it might impact the law here in New South Wales. Mm, yeah, well, stay wait tuned. And see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, wins for this week, Rena. What has been your win? So basically, I've taken on a scheme that had a mudslide back in December 2015. And finally, the last lot that hadn't been occupied has been completed in terms of all the remedial works. Mm. So looking at uh, July 2017, some 18 months later, that lot owner was actually renting the apartment out. So they were receiving um, loss of rent uh, compensation during that period. Mm. But the majority of the owners that were affected were actually owner-occupiers. So... Yeah, it's been long drawn out 18 months for them. Um, I've just been managing them for the last five months, but um, everyone's really happy now that it's all over. We're still negotiating with the um, insurer in terms of some legal costs um, to be paid because at the time the Owners Corporation had to take the insurer, get legal advice to enforce its rights. So that's sort of still ongoing. But apart from that, you know, everyone's now moved back in or able to rent their townhouses again. So that's a great win for that scheme. And Mm. um, yeah. Yeah, sounds like it. 
I was going to ask you, um, did the insurer come to the table quite promptly on that one? Because mudslide? Well, hmm. Yeah, it was before my time actually because um, this happened back in 2015. But from what I can see and, and the records that were provided, no, they did not come to the party quickly. And this is probably just something I might just touch on, Amanda, based on your question yeah. is that when lot owners are considering, you know, the owner's corporation's insurance policy at every AGM and you know, these are our insurances and here are three quotes – and usually people want to choose the cheapest quote or committee members and a lot of owners sometimes tend to want to do that without actually looking at the policy wording. And it's times like this where the policy wording is really important because that's when you know what sort of cover you're going to get. And also, I mean, some of my committee members have asked me, you know, which is the better one. I said, I can't give you advice on that. And we'll go through the broker and ask them for their advice. And and the broker will give us advice on, you know, which how insurers perform when claims arise because mm. in a sense, it's all fine, you know, when everything's nothing's happening and there's no, no significant claims being submitted. But then when there's a large one like this one, and I was involved, as you know, back in March 2009 at Eastgate at Bondi Junction. I mean, mm. that was fantastic and they came to the party and, you know, and whereas in this case that wasn't the case. I mean, people weren't even relocated. They had to pay out of their own pockets initially to find accommodation. So, yeah. yeah, it's important, I think, to look at your policy wording and get advice on it someone that can give you advice. Yeah, and we've had a couple of guests on the podcast uh, from Strata Insurers who have advised exactly that. Back in episode mm. 23, if you want to go back and have a listen uh, with Leonie Malonis from Strata Community Insurance, she mm. uh, was telling us what to look for in a Strata Insurance policy. And more recently on episode 67 with Anne-Marie Paul, where we talked about the legal liability of Strata Committee members. And I do remember both Leonie and Anne-Marie recommended exactly that, Rena, that buildings have a close look at their policies, that they don't think about the cheapest first and that they understand what they are and aren't covered for. And it is a, quite a competitive market. So get mm. out there and have a look at different policies and see, you can get some bang for your buck. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Thanks for sharing that story, Rena. My win is a little bit similar in that we have been involved in some litigation in the tribunal for a relatively new building that discovered some significant building defects and they lodged their claim against the developer in the tribunal having not had any luck through fair trading and through building inspector uh, rectification orders. We ended up in the tribunal, both parties legally represented and with the assistance of some good expert reports uh, some sensible legal advice, the matter was able to settle before it went to a hearing. And I bring this up as a win because this is how uh, a lot of building defects claims get resolved through a settlement where the developer or the uh, original builder will make a payment to the owner's corporation and essentially each party releases the other from any future liability. The owner's corporation walks away with some cash and is able to go ahead with its rectification works. And it's something that except in the most unusual cases is usually a path that we recommend as lawyers that there's a settlement without having to go down the uncertain and expensive path of litigation and potentially get a result from the tribunal that you're not happy with and um, not in control of. So 
this building uh, did compromise on a couple of issues and they did that by way of looking at what it would cost them from legal costs, from expert costs to have a fight about it in the tribunal and they said, look, it's going to cost us the same amount to fight about it. Let's just drop that. We'll raise a special levy or we've got funds in the sinking fund to cover that particular part of the work and let's settle and get some money released to us for the rest. So and that building was really happy with that result. That's a great result, Amanda. I was going to ask you, um, in terms of the quantum of the defects, yep. um, was there obviously there, was, there must have been a reason why you're in the tribunal and not in a higher jurisdiction. Yeah, so to be in the tribunal, your costs, your estimated costs to repair the defects must be 500000 or less. So mm. you can't be over 500000 The minute you do that, you're off to the district court. Yes. Um, and it, this was actually an interesting case in that the first report we got from the quantity surveyor, and it's quantity surveyors who assess what the, the costs are yes. uh, from a court perspective, the quantity surveyor had assessed the cost at some 700000 and we were already in the tribunal and this came through in an updated report. And those costs ended up getting revised down, uh, partly because they were, it was difficult to prove the particular item that was that was in dispute, and also because the costs of having to transfer out of the tribunal jurisdiction and into a court were going to be quite high. And when you spring that kind of thing on the other side as well, usually they want their costs paid also. So yeah. again, this building made quite a sensible commercial decision to say, look, do we really need to claim that item? Um, yeah, for $200,000 difference, you're going to spend at least half of it in courts and yep. in high just in the district court as opposed to the tribunal, which is a, probably a bit more easier in terms of um, costs. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, this building did well to settle. We ended up with, a, often how these things settle is that you're sitting in a conference with experts on both sides, with lawyers on both sides, uh, with representatives of the developer, representatives of the committee, the strata manager, and you spend a day uh, nutting it out. The experts telling you, you know, why why this is something you can't compromise, why something else you should probably compromise and figures go across the table and you agree on something that you can each live with. Yeah, it's obviously give and take. And I think also for most people, they actually want to get on and actually repair the defects of manner and not live in a building where water's coming in. And, and it obviously it affects the value of their lots when, when the, the oh, defects yeah. are still prevalent. So at least people can get it fixed and fix the way they want to get it fixed and, and move on, which I think is a very sensible approach. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, that's a lovely way to uh, celebrate our wins for the week, Rena. Don't forget to grab the transcript of this episode from yourstrataproperty.com.au forward slash 074. Thanks for the chat as always, Rena. Thank you, Amanda. Take care. Bye-bye. See you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? Thank you.